All right, Hansel, so I'm 10 years old. It's a hot day in the summer of 1999, and I am convinced that I'm going to hell. All right, as a 10-year-old, I'm convinced I'm going to hell because I am sure that at some point in my long life of 10 years that I have committed the unforgivable sin of blasphemy against mm. the Holy Spirit. Now, mind you, as a 10-year-old, I didn't know what blasphemy was. Mm -hmm. I didn't know how to commit blasphemy, mm -hmm. and I didn't even really know what the Holy Spirit was or understand anything like that. But I read this thing in the Bible yeah. about those who committed blasphemy would be not be able to get into heaven. And so I thought for sure already as a 10-year-old that I had lost my salvation. So in order to practice getting ready to go to hell, I used to sit in the car after we would pull in on the summer or like we would pull into our parking spot in the summer and I would let the car get really hot and I would sit in the car as long as I could to try and stand it so I could try and prepare and be ready. This was a real thing I did all summer there of my 10th year of life because I was so convinced that I wasn't going to make it to heaven. This is the first I'm hearing about this, but wow. I mean, that's intense. I think you bring up such a visceral image of such an important question can Christians lose their salvation? Mm -hmm. And while it's easy to think, oh, this is just topic for debate thirsty people on the internet or professors in some university that has no consequences for our daily life. No, that's not true. It actually has a big impact on how people and Christians think about their, their status and how they think about their churches. So welcome everybody to Kingdom Thinking. If you just witnessed Josh's story, I certainly hope that you or some, nobody you know is in that situation. <laughs> but we should definitely talk about that because as, as you mentioned, it's really, really important. Yeah. Good. So the first thing I want to say is, my goodness, what a story. Uh, that was seriously the first time I had ever heard that from you and I am, I am moved. I am moved very deep in, inside myself. Um, so I certainly hope that's not uh, the way you think anymore. No, thankfully. Okay, thankfully. okay good. However, the way of thinking that, like you said, a, as a child can be espoused, can actually continue with mature or growing people in ministry, people mm -hmm. in churches, Christian adults. And so what we want to highlight is the two sides of this question. Can Christians lose their salvation? On one side, you're going to have a tradition or a way of thinking of understanding the Bible that says, yeah, it's possible to fall away from faith, to fall away from grace. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, you're going to have a position, a line or a school of thought that says, no, it, it's not possible to move away from, from God's free gift of salvation, which is permanent, right? So the first thing I want to emphasize is that, like I said, this isn't simply a topic of academic thought. Right. This has real consequences for people. So if you are from a Anglican, Lutheran, Presbyterian, or what's called the Reformed tradition, you would probably uh, espouse or follow the catechisms or teachings of what's called the Reformed tradition mm -hmm. or Calvinism. Sure. Okay. Um, on the other hand, we have more of what's called Arminianism or a, in America at least, what came to be like a Wesleyan tradition. From there, we have like Methodism. Uh, probably some of like restorationist uh -huh. traditions from there. And then eventually in more recent times, like charismatic or Pentecostal traditions. Right. So for our viewers, you can kind of trace or identify where you may be at already in this discussion, just based on your denomination and the teachings or the catechism doctrines, we could say, right. the doctrines that would be taught in that denomination. 
But beyond the historical development of those thoughts, the question at a fundamental level of can you lose your salvation goes all the way logically back to how we understand free will right. or yep. the nature of humanity. Yep. So talk to me a little bit about how both sides maybe understand uh, the nature of humanity or what we mean by free will. Sure. So we have to ask ourselves, are humans born with this kind of neutral inclination towards or against God, right? Correct. And a lot of our understanding of free will and whether or not we have it at all uh, will stem on whether or not you think uh, there's like this, uh, what has come to be kind of popularly known as like this total depravity of humanity, right? Like, are you born with this inclination to stand against God yeah. there? Or is there something, you know, when scripture says that we're made in God's image, so therefore there is something redemptive or good inherently a part of our DNA or our bone structure or whatever, you know, whatever granular level to which you want to get to that makes us good, right? Can we, or can we be like God, but not necessarily good like God? So depending on how, you know, traditions define or yep. answer that question, really, that's going to really set you off on kind of your trajectory. That's exactly right. And so the, the first thing we want to offer towards trying to dialogue about this issue is, well, how do you view or understand human nature and mm -hmm. free will. So when the Bible says we, we are dead mm -hmm. in our trespasses, is that making a prescriptive or descriptive right. judgment on humanity? Is it saying, no, 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 like human nature in its fallen corrupted state is born in enmity, meaning in, uh, in a disposition contrary to God. Okay. Or is, is that more of a, of a Hebraism? Is that more poetic yeah. saying we're out of relationship with God dead meaning out of inheritance meaning out of the kinship with God in in Romans uh, what is it Romans 5 in the first Adam mm -hmm. all have sinned in the second Adam all can be made alive it, again is that a description of human nature as it is or is it a prescription saying this is what must be right so right. the way you answer that question regarding human nature and the condition of fallen man is, is going to make a big difference yep, to it. Huge. Good. So in, in a nutshell, Arminianism is the theological or the way of reading the Bible that says that humanity is in its fallen form wounded, but not completely unable to respond to God without being regenerated right. first. Calvinism is the tradition that would say, like you mentioned, right? Uh, total depravity, understanding the Old Testament prophets talking about death or the hardness of the heart and the New Testament um, talking about God foreknowing and predestining, meaning that humanity in its fallen condition cannot in and of itself know God or come to God unless he first regenerates them. Yep. So we're going to go through a brief acrostic to understand these. Um, Calvinism is usually described in this acrostic of TULIP. Yep. Okay, so let me go through this real quick. TULIP, the T stands for total depravity. Essentially what that means is that man's condition is such that he or she cannot respond to God unless God regenerates him first. So what does regenerate mean? Regenerate means to, to be born again, to, mm -hmm. make, to make alive again. Okay. In a nutshell, this means people come to faith because God made them alive, not they are reborn because they came to faith. Mm -hmm. It's going to be really important in a second. The U in TULIP is for unconditional election, meaning that God 
in his infinite judgment, in his infinite wisdom and goodness before creation, before creation, that God chose those who would be, who would come to faith, not on the basis of their faith. In other words, it's not that God knows who's going to come to faith. It's that God is actively choosing to redeem. Okay. The L in tulip is limited atonement, meaning that Christ's sacrifice to save is intentionally and specifically for those who are, are chosen by God, mm -hmm. rather than a generic salvific moment that says, if anybody wants to accept this, this sacrifice is for you. Right. Rather, it's Christ died for his own, yeah. those who would come to him. Yeah. Okay. Then you have the I in tulip, which is irresistible grace. What this means is that God's call to salvation is 100% effective, meaning when God shows himself to a person for who he really is, that person will see God and recognize him as the most desirable being. Mm -hmm. So that when God actually moves toward in, in grace towards somebody, that person will respond. Right. And the P is perseverance of the saints, which means that God's regeneration or making alive of, of the human soul is such that um, it cannot be undone. Mm -hmm. It is a, a promise, a covenant, an irreversible one that, that God will not forsake his own or nor abandon them. Contrary to that is, is Arminianism, right? So go ahead and take me through the counter points sure. of TULIP. Yeah, so we have, uh, instead of total depravity, we have partial depravity, right? So although human beings are tainted by sin, right, everything in this world has been touched by it. Correct. The incarnation of Christ and the preaching of the gospel uh, is basically God's common grace, yeah. which enables anyone willing to come to faith. Uh, and so this is a, you know, already there's a massive departure Correct. here from where the conversation even begins. Yeah. Uh, so instead of unconditional election, right, you have conditional election. So God predestined that those would be saved in eternity past uh, on the basis of his foreknowledge of faith, right? Okay. First Timothy 2 talks about this. God does indeed want all people to be saved. Uh, then you have unlimited atonement, right? John three sixteen. for God so loved the world, he gave his only son, whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Okay. Uh, so the whosoever there is right. massively emphasized, right? Kind of opens up the yeah. conversation. Yeah, the floodgates, right? It's the, what is it? The Pontata Ethne, right? It's like for all the peoples kind of thing. Okay. Uh, resistible grace. So is the next one. So because of the preaching of the gospel is God's free offer to everybody, people can choose to believe or yeah. choose not to believe, right? And this okay. is John three eighteen. Uh, salvation can indeed be lost on the basis that God's free gift must be actively accepted by believers, mm. right? And so believers can indeed fall out of faith and lose their salvation. Uh, Hebrews 6 is often cited uh, okay. for these kinds of ideas. So it basically, it's just, everything is just a one-to-one -one counter it is. here, right? So it's it like is. Calvinism will interpret it this way. Armenianism will almost just take the exact opposite stance that just allows it to be for everybody and instead of a limited few. Right. Not arbitrarily though, with, right. with scriptural yeah. citation, yeah. right? And yeah. so, so if we're completely honest, part of the difficulty of this discussion is that there are so many passages in the Bible that support each of these points. And yeah. so this is not like somebody's obviously right here and somebody's obviously just, well, you know, trying to not read the Bible correctly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, at least for the purposes of our discussion, sure. at least in an in, in, in honest. Fine, I'll grant you goodwill okay. in this discussion. There you go, there you go. <laughs> so given that difficulty, let me just be completely honest with you and say I'm, I'm a five-point Calvinist. I'm very compelled by Reformed theology. Um, I see it as a comprehensive and compelling view of viewing not only God and human nature, but our surroundings and, and making sense of the world. So 
part of the reason for me that I find Reformed theology compelling and not, um, I mean, what would be the word? Arbitrary, capricious, sure. right? A God who, uh, who intentionally is sending people to hell and um, who forces people who don't want to worship him to, to stay in a relationship with him as is often unfairly, but thrown sure. at, at, the, at this position. Part of the reason that I see it as compelling is um, on the one hand, the discussion of free will and human nature is very, very significant, as we just said, right? right? And so a lot of times a philosophy of ethics or a a view of ex- human experience that says, hey, it makes more sense that people who love other people allow them to choose right. to reciprocate love. Because when that's not the case, we usually call that domestic abuse. Yeah, for right? sure, for sure. And so... That, that totally makes sense that when we think about, okay, what should a loving relationship look like? What should a covenant, which is uh, a language used to describe God's relationship to his people, right? Covenant, mm-hmm. betrothed, mm-hmm. the bride of Christ. What should that look like? Well, that, it should be voluntary. Yeah. It should be reciprocal. That totally makes sense. Now, where, where I don't think that necessarily follows is, well, because it should be reciprocal and because it should be voluntary, that means that our will should be free. And to flippantly say free will, I think that's problematic for me. And here's what I mean by that. When people talk about free will, like you said, I think they usually mean that humanity is born with a neutral disposition towards God. Sure. Meaning that when, when a baby is born, they can either choose to do the good or choose to do the bad. And usually they do the bad either out of imitation or example, um, or a learned behavior that is nurtured in them. And so the, the line of thinking goes, well, if people have a neutral disposition towards God, then they should be able to choose God mm-hmm. on, on their own, right? Where, where I think that's problematic is I'm not sure that the Old Testament prophets, where Ezekiel talks about the, the heart of stone right. that can't feel, that will need to be remade by God. Uh, the, the poetic language there is, I'm going to give you a heart, that, a flesh that can feel, where Jeremiah talks about a, a new covenant and, and a new heart, um, where the New Testament, uh, the, uh, Paul in the epistles is going to talk about uh, not only Adam and Christ as representatives, but the necessity for a, a corporate head, somebody who goes before us, a new nature of humanity, mm-hmm. which is essentially what we have in Christ. Um, and then the Apostle Paul again in Romans, Ephesians. All, all that to say is I don't see a neutral disposition of the human condition sure. outlined in Scripture of fallen humanity. Mm-hmm. I don't see that there. And so that it's a non-starter, right? Like if you want to say, well, everything has to be reciprocal and voluntary for it to make sense, for it to make sense with our experience of ethics and what, what God should be like, well, that doesn't exist. Right. Rather, like we all point our fists to God and say, God, we'll do it our way. We don't right. need you. We hate you. Like that's the nature of fallen humanity. Um, so that's, that's my first sure. point with that. And so to, to make it short, right? The logic of that goes that if that's actually the initial conditions of human, of the fallen humanity, then it has to be more than what's called common grace, yeah. right? Of right. A, hey, here's right. here's kind of like uh, I somebody somebody I one a friend told me it's kind of like the tickets already been purchased at the booth. 
you can choose if you want to pick it up yeah, or not to yeah. attend the event. It's a will call. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Well, no, it's actually it's not the best that. way to get Dodger tickets, by the way. Yeah, is, is that right? <laughs> <laughs> um, it actually is much worse than that. Yeah. It, it's actually the case that 100 out of 100 times, humanity would reject God just like Adam and Eve did. Sure. And unless God would show himself um, and remake them, then, then faith would not come. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of a little bit of that logic, but I would... You're not a Calvinist No, at all, no. Right? You're far from it. I'm a... Probably the best way to say I'm a free will advocate. All right. Right. This so is a good. Talk to me about how you would respond for that. And, you yeah. Know, like... I think so. Briefly, I would say that the first thing uh, of humanity, I don't think something has to be a neutral disposition for it to not be inherently fully evil. Right. And this is where I think Calvinism kind of pushes too far. Uh, I don't think that something is because something is not inherently neutral. I don't think it's only bad. Right. I think that's simplifying the dialogue far too much, uh, throwing the baby out with the bathwater, if you will. Uh, so the entirety of humanity is tainted for sure by sin, right? Mm -hmm. Like I see it in my daughter as a two-year-old, right? (laughs) Some days she's the most beautiful thing in the world. Other days she is just evil, Uh, right? But I think there is a genuine mixture here, right? Because I do think when scripture tells us that we're created in God's image, that means there's something inherently good stamped on our DNA. Uh, And so the ability that Calvinism has to kind of parse that out to such a fine and granular and molecular level, right, just by saying, like, everything is all bad all the time, feels a little bit disingenuous to the conversation to me. Because as, you know, from the youngest, right, when we we always kind of come back to these conversations about babies or children or whatever, right, like, there is this inherent love that my daughter has that is as pure as purity is on the side of the grave. And, And so, to me, that speaks to something deeper in the human condition than just purely 100% evil, because that wasn't something that I taught her inherently, right? It was something that she, to, and from my experience with her, from what I've seen, mm-hmm. right? It's like something that has, that she came out with, right? Mm-hmm. Like this natural desire to love and to be loved, right? Uh, and and so, so I think that's a little bit problematic right there. I think it's too uh, fine of a parsing out of something that is far more muddy of a conversation, right? And so that always just makes me a little bit weary when somebody just automatically runs to one side of the dialogue or the other, right? I don't think humanity is inherently good either. Right. Um, and so... That would be a heresy. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Pelagianism. Uh, and so... Uh, and then the other thing that that moves me in this conversation is uh, the reality is a lot of this will be determined by which lens you decide to prioritize your viewing of God through, right? So God's for sovereignty, sure. God's love, God's for whatever. Sure. I find it extremely problematic to turn to places like Ezekiel and Jeremiah for a convert that were so contextually specific, right? That were reading, that were writing for such a uh, intentionality of this nation of Israel uh, that it's hard for me to look at that and make prescriptive declarations about the total human experience from those books, right? For me, the two best places to look at that are always in the person of Jesus and what the descriptions of God are. And so when I look at the person of Jesus in Scripture, I find somebody who is uh, completely voluntary in the way that he interacts with people, uh, in the way that he's revealed, the way that he, you know, preaches, the way that he invites you to the table or not, right? Those, there is never, from what I see, uh, this movement of force or uh, coercion, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and the other one is this, and when First John 4, 8 tells us that God is love, right? If God's essence god is sovereign god is holy god is righteous right but god's essence is love i i think that to me is a very convincing uh picture that says we need to view love as the dominant lens and 
I don't think that the revelation of love that we can understand on this earth is going to be something that is so contrary to what the definition of God's love is. So, so what I mean is like this, if, if God's essence is love, then that has to be revealed to you and me in a way that we can understand as people. And coercion is such a central part of love, right? Or lack thereof. And the idea that we wouldn't have a choice to enter into that relationship is so fundamental to our understanding of what love is. It's hard for me to see the, that uh, as something to say, like, yeah, that would be true in our situation, but that's not necessarily true in the divine situation with humanity, right? God's self and God, the way that God reveals God's self in relationship with us as people uh, and the love that we share between creator and created is going to be markedly different from the relationship that you as that you and I share as people, right? Uh, and so it's it's difficult for me to rectify those kinds of those kinds okay. of things. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. So a quick response before we move on, I would say the Calvinistic position isn't that fallen humanity no longer bears the image of God. It's that the image of God has been marred, so that it doesn't have a capacity to know him and express him as he as man were intended to but there's still something good yeah in us got it okay yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then the second thing the calvinistic position also wouldn't say that uh regeneration or the perseverance of the saints of being in god's grip for salvation is of coercion yeah i mean that, that would just be a fundamental disagreement you there, think so right? yeah i don't think there's any way to get past that there so i mean i I don't think that's fair, though. So the way that I would express that would be if you could actually see objectively, right, meaning outside with some divine illumination, mm -hmm. which, which obviously we don't have. We're situated human sure. beings, right? We have to confess that immediately. If you could actually see what is true, good, and beautiful, is it, does, it, does it not follow logic that you would be inclined towards that? Sure. I don't, yeah, I don't have a problem saying and, that. And so the way that Calvinism makes sense of that is when God reveals himself to somebody and and this gets into like different views of of like philosophical views sure. of human will like one's called compatibilism or one's called libertarianism right. right does god just happen to be in line with what people choose or is what people choose in line yeah with who god with, is right who god is, sure. either way the calvinistic way of thinking about that is when god actually reveals himself to someone he's enabling the human free choice mm -hmm. to stop choosing sin and to choose him sure so do you do you still see that as like no that's not really getting yeah. away from coercion no not that, really that's coercion in it, your... it feels like there's no other choice in that context right like it's such a uh, it's such a non sequitur to me in this discussion because it's not something that can ever be revealed right like interesting all we have is right here and right now in the way that we can understand that and okay. in every human to human interaction yeah there's no form of coercion that can be involved in genuine true love. And so if that's all we've got, yeah. then any type of revelation that's outside that is not something that is available for our brains to comprehend. And so it's a moot point there. It's a distinction without a difference as far as I'm concerned. Interesting. Yeah. So I think fundamentally then the point of departure is, again, the condition of human nature. Yeah. Right. And but also interestingly enough, where do we start the ethics? Is yeah. it from the ground up? Is it from experience? Yeah. Or is it from uh the, the theoretical framework. All ethics are from the ground up. Right. Um, so, so that's interesting. Mm -hmm. So in a nutshell, then, the question of can Christians lose their salvation? 
I mean, it just depends on which tradition you're coming from, sure. right? If you're charismatic, Pentecostal, Restorationist, Methodist, you're going to come from a long line of thinkers that prioritize the conversation in, in the exact way yeah, you did. Yeah, right? absolutely. Um, now, that's not to, to say it's arbitrary. It's to say that there's there's real deep things to think about as we put together Scripture and read Scripture yeah, as a whole for sure. that are going to inform that. Yeah, because um, there's, I mean, as somebody who is a, a total advocate of free will, I think there's genuine examples of Scripture that are, Super convincing, where God just yeah. reaches into history and is like, "Nope, there, right." I think Judas is a great example of yeah. that, right? Pharaoh seems to be a great example of that, in kind of some ways, depending on like, uh, you are, know, you, are you talking about? I think expressing so, so. Free will, yeah. So I think people who are free will advocates will yeah. say like, "Well, no, Pharaoh hardened his own heart," and blah 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 blah. But it's like I, I don't know. When I read Paul in Romans nine, I, it feels like Paul is saying like, "No, God chose Pharaoh to be a vessel of destruction," right? And, and so. <laughs> So there is just like these this tension. Yeah, that that is irreconcilable. Okay. Right? All right. That's fair. So then it seems like can Christians lose their salvation? It really just depends on which denomination or which tradition you're coming from. Sure. Yeah, so what do you do then about from like a pastoral perspective? One of the things that I think about a lot are like deconversion stories, mm. right? So how do you handle those? Yeah. That's that's a big monkey wrench. And yet it's so pressing and so important because on a doing church Christian life level we really have to reckon with that. I mean, I think, for example, of Bart Ehrman, mm -hmm. um, New Testament scholar. He was a big part of uh, New New Testament uh, textual criticism. He, as far as I know, he was an evangelical. Mm -hmm. So a prominent thinker, prominent Christian leader, um, obviously intelligent. I think he's a professor at Indiana UNC, uh, or UNC, Illinois. UNC. Okay, he's Chapel at UNC Hill. now. Now, uh, he's actually, if I'm not mistaken, he's agnostic now. Yeah. So his conclusions over time and his progression as a thinker is that the New Testament is actually unreliable or at least inconclusive in its evidence of Christianity such that uh, faith in Christ is not warranted. Sure. And so you have obviously a very intelligent person who's probably smarter than, than both of us, has studied a lot more, and yet his conclusions are Christianity should be abandoned. Mm -hmm. We don't even have to go very far. We probably know people yeah. who yeah, grew up sure. in churches, people in our youth groups who have walked away from the faith. What do we do with conversion stories? Because I have to confess, it seems way too easy and too cheap to say, oh, well, obviously they weren't Christians. Well, how do you know? Well, because Christians would have persevered. Wait, so you're saying Christians don't lose their salvation, and you know that because... Christians who persevere to the end are remain Christians. It's, it's a circular, that circular gift. That doesn't make sense. Check right? me, Calvinist. Right, and, and so and so there's a real question just for our churches and our pastors yeah. and our viewers that needs to be answered. What about deconversion stories? And you know what? Like as the more I think about it, um, I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't know what to do with uh, a conviction that says that the gift of salvation for God is so efficient or so effective that the human soul is remade. And yet you're going to have people who are confessing this truth and then are going to say, no, I'm, I don't believe that anymore. I'm, I don't, I don't worship God. Yeah. Um, that's a lot harder for me to answer than it would be for you. Right. Yeah, for sure. Cause for you, you would just say, well, there's a clear evidence and example that, well, especially because the biblical measurement that we have by which to, you know, kind of yeah, judge these things is purely the fruit of someone's life. Right. There. And so it's like, dude, if somebody was, you know, bearing good fruit for 12 years, and then it turns out they were faking it the whole time. Like, dude, that's a lot of wasted time just making money <laughs> there and living a life that you want to live. You know, it's like, right. it's, it's such an arbitrary thing to it put really on is. someone's it really experience. Is. That's that correct. It's like, 
That's correct. And and that's and that's but that's a double-edged sword, right? Because on the one hand, you will know them by their fruits, even though that's talking about prophets um, in Matthew chapter 7. On the other hand, also in Matthew chapter 7, not everybody who's calling me Lord, mm-hmm. Lord is going to enter the kingdom of heaven. So on the But we've one got hand, fruit it, of the spirit that's also born in Galatians 5. Correct. Right? That shows like, dude, if you're if you're bearing out these nine fruits, yeah. then there's probably something in you that's changed and different. Okay. Right. And yet the metrics for observing these things are insufficient. And in so, in uh, Calvinist framework, they would certainly be there. So you, you would I say, would think they would be fine in an Armenian one, for sure, because they say, could say when, for when, that period of their life, yeah. they were walking with Christ, and then they decided that that wasn't something that oh, they wanted to do Oh, that's interesting. That is interesting, and I wish we had more time, because essentially what I would say then is then you could never know. You have no security. Right. Oh, man, how, how do you sleep at night? No, well, no, that tomorrow I'm going to wake up and be a follower <laughs> okay. of Jesus. Well, um, I mean, that's that's part of the, the intrigue, right, of the conversation and, and the continual pushback. So what do you guys think? That there's, although we just, right, and, and, and uh, we talk about this, there's a real pastoral concern. Yeah, for that, sure. That our viewers and listeners genuinely experience these questions and want answers for that. And we don't want to toss it up and say it's arbitrary. But on, on the other hand, there's really deep roots uh, of thinking about this that would differ. And, and that's okay, that mm-hmm. there's a tension there. So as we transition to this for our next topic, what about Christians and suicide? Yeah, this is huge. That is so huge for our churches, so huge for people in ministry, um, and for the people that we care about. Yeah. So what we want you to do is to tune in and follow us on this next episode when we enter in this conversation. Leave us a comment, though. What do you think about Christianity and losing their salvation? Did we miss something? What denomination are you from and how have you been taught this? Thanks for tuning in and we'll see you next time as we continue the conversation.